passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I don't know how it works for you, but when I was growing up, we were one of those families that when we put the Christmas tree up in in the beginning of December, the presents sort of started to slowly gather around the tree. I mean, some people, what they do is they wait till Christmas Eve and the kids go to bed, then the presents show up for Santa. Uh, We weren't one of those families. They just showed up. And I was an only child, so you know I didn't have to worry about a lot of the other presents going someplace else. What I would do as a kid, I remember I'd get down when mom and dad weren't looking, and I'd go look at the labels and see how many of the presents were for me. And quite honestly, I thought I hit the jackpot just about every year, because most of the presents had my name on them. And I mean, when you're only child, you come up as a winner that way. But when Christmas morning came, I discovered, even though I was excited for those presents, they weren't all the kind of presents that I was asking for. They were what you call, many of them, practical presents. Mom, Dad, you know what those are like. Christmas morning, thank you, Aunt Lil, for the new pair of socks. I'm thrilled. And thank you, uh, Aunt Muffy, for the new pair of white underwear. I was dreaming about that. I'm so thankful to have that. I'm 12. You know, and of course, there was the new dress shirt for church. I don't know what was wrong with my other dress shirts, but you always had to get a new dress shirt for church for some reason every Christmas. And so after a while, you're going through these presents. You're like, man, this is not that much fun. But then, thankfully, there are always those presents. I couldn't tell them apart when they were under the tree and wrapped. But always those presents, were the, they were the presents that I really wanted. One year, it was a remote-controlled car. And as a 12-year-old boy, that's the kind of thing you're hoping for. Another year, it was Legos. You know, all those kind of things that made Christmas morning exciting. This morning, I'm going to give you a present. And at first... This present may look just like all the other presents that are under your tree. Nothing special, nothing different. But I think if you stick with me, you'll find the present I'm about to give you is something you really want, and it's something you desperately need. I love you guys. And so the present I am about to give you in this message is the most loving thing I can give you in this season. And maybe... It may be better than any of the other presents you receive. If you take what we're going to talk about this morning to heart and apply it to your life, I guarantee you it'll change you in huge ways. It may save your marriage. It may save your relationships. It may save your very life. So what I'm about to talk to you about this morning is a huge, huge deal. And it's the best gift that I can possibly give. What I'm going to talk to you about is how you can have victory over sin. Isn't that what all of us struggle with? Sin? For some of us, our biggest problems are habitual sins that have been there for years. Others of us, it's a new sin that we just started struggling with this week. Some of us, it's a a powerful sin. For others of us, it's a private sin. 
What I'm about ready to tell you this morning is the key to victory over sin, no matter what shape it comes in. And that's why I think this is the best gift I could give you this Christmas season. Before we dive into where we, how we find victory over sin, let me just take a moment to just sort of orientate you what we're doing this morning. For the month of December, as Pastor Stephen mentioned, we've been hopping and skipping our way through the book of Romans. It's called the Advent of the Son. And that the whole focus of this series is the coming of Jesus and why Jesus came. Pastor Chris Neider and then Pastor Stephen, they focused on the first three chapters of Romans, which talked about the problem that we all have. Pastor Chris talked about the problem of sin for all people. Pastor Stephen talked about how sin is still the problem even for God's people. Everyone is struggling with sin, no matter where you go. Religious people or secular people. But when sin is always the problem, Jesus is always the answer, isn't it? And that's why Pastor Jordan and I get to talk about in these last two messages of this series, the advent of the Son, the greatest gift that has ever been given, the one who is the answer to the problem of sin. Pastor Jordan will be focusing on uh, Romans chapter 4 and 5 when he comes back next week, and he'll talk about the gift of justification, how Jesus is the one who gives us the gift of being made right with God. And uh, I'm going to focus on this this morning, chapters 6 through 8 of Romans, which is the gift of sanctification, which is how our life changes, becomes pleasing to God. If you pull your outlines out, I'll just give you uh, those definitions because justification and sanctification sound like big religious words, but they're really not that hard to comprehend. These are the first two fill in the blanks. Justification is being forgiven of my sin and being being made right with God positionally. Sanctification is breaking free from the power of sin and living right with God practically. So these are the two gifts that we are focusing on in the last two weeks of our series. How Jesus made us positionally right with God, and then how he makes us practically right with God. The text that I'm going to be teaching out of, how how Jesus makes us practically right with God and breaks us free from the power of sin, is going to be Romans chapter 6, the first 14 verses. So stand out of reverence for God's Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, I don't care if you use a smartphone or a paper Bible, it's fine with me. Follow along with your eyes as I read the first 14 verses of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means! How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were Therefore, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been buried with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
The one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And that ends the reading of God's Word. You can be seated. Now, I want to be honest and tell you that I realize, as I read that, some of you are going, wow, that sounds like a brain twister. Uh, That sort of ties my mind in knots, and dead, and live, and where does this all go? As we explain this to you, actually, it's a rather simple passage with very powerful truths. So let's go ahead and work our way through it. First thing we see, this is right on the top. Why shouldn't I increase my sin so God can show more grace for my sin? We're starting at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, but we have to understand where Romans chapter 5 left off. Paul had just finished explaining to the people that God forgives all of our sin through our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We cannot be any more forgiven of our sin than we are right now for what Christ has done for our sin. In fact, even as we continue to sin, as we go forward in life, guess what? Jesus Christ has forgiven all of that sin. Even the sin we commit in the future is forgiven. This is amazing truth. This is wonderful truth. But Paul realizes that Some people hearing that are going to get excited for it, but excited in the wrong way. They sort of would figure, well, you mean it doesn't matter how much I sin? I can sin as much as I want, and Jesus will forgive me every time? I've got a Monopoly get-out-of-jail-free card that's labeled as Jesus? Well, in that case, why don't I go hog-wild? Why don't I sin a lot? Why don't I sin really good? Because after all, Jesus is going to forgive me every single time. And uh, what they're doing is they're misunderstanding something Paul said in Romans chapter 5. This is what he said in Romans 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Every time I sin more, God gives grace more. So let's enjoy sin more. Now, who actually thinks like that? Christians that now think they can enjoy sin? Well, obviously, the people that Paul is writing to may think that way. But you think, do do people actually think that way today? They do. One of my favorite illustrations is a guy named Rasputin. You guys ever heard of Rasputin? Some of you know, Eric's heard of him. He was a Russian monk, 
as a counselor to the Romanov family, which was the family that ruled Russia. And he said, he took this part of Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. He told the Romanov family, if you want to really experience God, let me tell you what to do. Sin a lot. In fact, the more you sin, the more grace you will receive from God for your sin. So go at it hog wild. And I didn't know if I'd have the uh, video up here, but I, I looked him up, and he is ugly as sin. Really. He's not a, not a pretty guy, I was thinking. I texted the picture of him to Jordan, and Jordan was like, well, by the way, if he has to come and work on my house for the furnace, I'm not letting him in. But it, So this is the guy who kept saying that Christians should, it's okay to sleep around, it's okay to steal, it's okay to hit your sister, that's okay because God will forgive you every time. In fact, you experience more of God's grace all the time. What's wrong with that? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Why not sin all the more? Hey, it's a great, what can I say? It's a good passage. (laughs) It's Romans chapter 6. But, okay. Oh, all right. Back to this one. Uh, Here's one of the things that he misses. Consequences. Whenever you sin, you will suffer. Even if God forgives you of your sin, aren't there consequences you suffer for your sin? Take a... Say I decide I'd follow Rasputin's idea. Hey, I might as well sin a lot so I can receive a lot of grace from God for it. He's going to forgive me every time. So I decide that what I'm going to do is I'm going to maybe get more money. I'm going to rob a bank. So I go out and I I rob a bank, but I'm not a really good bank robber. Cops arrest me, throw me in the back of the squad car. They're driving me to the jail, and the arresting officer looks in the back and sees me doing this. He's praying. I finish praying, and I say to the arresting officer, well, I want you to know I'm a Christian. I prayed. I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin. He does. Because where my sin increased, grace increased all the more. And if God now forgives me of my sin, who are you as as just a mere human being to make me pay for my sin? Just pull over right now and let let me out. What do you think the police officer would say? That chance, right. No, you're going to jail. There are consequences for your sin. So that's one of the problems with Rasputin. He says, you know, we might as well go ahead and sin a lot. We receive a lot of grace for that. Yes, does Jesus forgive us of our sin? Yes, but we can't necessarily escape the consequences for our sin in this earth, in this life, because when we sin, we will suffer. There's always suffering that goes along with sin. Well, while you laugh at Rasputin with me, and you laugh at my imaginary bank robber illustration, let's be honest that many Christians live exactly that way today. Thinking that, well, it doesn't really matter what I do, because won't Jesus always forgive me? An example I want to give you comes from my freshman year in college. When you go to college as as a young guy, one of the things you're excited about is there's the whole bunch of new girls 
And so you get excited to go over to the girls' dorms and meet the girls, and maybe, maybe you could actually go on a date with one of those girls. Pretty exciting. Oh, one of my uh, associates, not, I wouldn't call him a friend, but I just knew of him, I, he began dating a girl uh, at his freshman year. And I also heard through rumors that he was becoming sexually involved with that girl pretty regularly. And so after, remember, I still remember, it was after a gen ed class, myself and another friend sort of talked to him in the hall. We're like, hey, dude, like, we've heard that you and her are like, like doing the thing, you know? Like, is, is that true? And he just turned and looked at me and he's like, well, yeah, of course. I'm like, don't you think that's wrong? Said, well, it doesn't really matter because Jesus always forgives. <laughs> well, he does forgive. So what's the problem? He forgives me every time. I'm like, well, yeah. And he said, besides, we're going to get married after college. I'm like, dude, you got four years to go. Well, I even remember, you know, quoting some verses for him like this one. Like, you know, I've got verses, I told him. It says this, let, the marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Uh, Hebrews 11.25, sin is enjoyable, but only for a short time. And I'm not too sure it's going to work out too well. Well, God does extend grace for your sin. It also looks like there's some consequences to your sin. When we come into Romans chapter 6, what Paul is doing is he's answering the Rasputins of this world. He's answering my college friend in this world who say, you know what? As long as I sin, it's okay because God will always forgive. While he does forgive, there are problems with that line of thinking. Here's what he says. Christians should not continue in sin because they are dead to sin. Romans chapter 6, first two verses. What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may just abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't continue in sin as Christians as if it's no big deal. Absolutely not. Paul says, you need to understand what happens to you when you become a Christian. There is a massive shift, a massive change in your character. When you become a Christian, you become dead to sin. Not alive to sin. Um, you, you and I read that, we say, well, that's good, but what does it even mean to be dead to sin? Does being dead to sin mean that sin is no longer attractive to us? Can't mean that, because it's certainly still attractive to me, to you. Does being dead to sin mean that maybe now we know that some things are more wrong than we used to? True, but I think it would mean more than that. What does it mean that when we become a Christian, we become dead to sin and our relationship to sin changes? I put this into your outlines because I wanted to make sure you remembered it. Dead to sin means we are no longer under the reign of sin. In other words, we are no longer under the power of sin. Sin may still be attractive to us, but we are no longer forced by sin to obey its desires. 
Romans chapter 1 tells us that before Christ, everyone is controlled by sin. Before Christ, we didn't necessarily see sin in our heart ruling us and controlling us, but it was. Before Christ, there were things in our life that were sinful. We didn't even see them as wrong. But when you come to Christ, all of a sudden, you become dead to sin. It no longer reigns and rules in us. So we start to see issues of sin we never saw before. We start to have victory over sin we never had victory over before. See, the good news is we are not just justified by Jesus and made right with God, but there is a new power in our life when we become a Christian. We become a new person when we become a Christian. We are literally no longer under the control of sin, so we have to obey it when it tempts us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His Son. Let me give you an illustration that may make this understandable. Remember when Iraq was taken over by ISIS? and They took over the government. They took over the communication. They oppressed the people terribly. They tortured the people. But then the American forces came in and some of the other forces and they, we liberated Iraq and we returned the government to the people. We returned the senses of communications to the people. At that point, did, did ISIS completely go away? No. They went on the outskirts, right? They continued to harass the nation. They continued to fight a guerrilla warfare against the nation but they were no longer in charge of that nation, were they? That's the same way it is for you and me. Before we came to Christ, it was like ISIS was in control of our heart. Sin was in control of our life. There was no other option. But when we become a Christian, as we're going to unpack a little more this morning, we become a new person. We become dead to sin Sin is no longer reigning and ruling in our heart. Doesn't mean sin is not still tempting. Of course it's still tempting. Doesn't mean we're not still harassed by sin. Of course we're still harassed by sin. But Jesus is the one who is now in charge of our heart. Our sinful desires are not the things that are in charge of our soul. And pulling all the lines like a marionette pulling a puppet. Jesus is. So, the key is that when we are dead to sin, like I said, it means that we are, sin is no longer reigning. It is no longer ruling in our heart. We do not have to obey its desires. Still tempting? Yes. Can it still harass us? Yes. But it's not in control. Now, the rest of these 14 verses, it unpacks how we have victory over sin. Um, Remember, we have a new, we're a new person now, but how do we live out that new person life? How do we find victory over sin now that it is no longer reigning and ruling in our heart, though it is harassing us? And there are three steps that he gives us. The first step is this. Victory over sin begins by knowing my identity. Verses 3 through 5. Do you not know? See right there? 
that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him into baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He says this, baptism pictures how closely we have become identified with Jesus. And I want to just begin by talking a little bit about baptism itself. What is baptism? Baptism is not something that saves us, by the way, folks. Baptism is an outward sign that represents what has been an inward transformation. Baptism is an outward picture of what is an inward reality, sort of like my wedding ring. My wedding ring does not make me married, does it? But it's an outward picture of the fact that I have made a pledge and commitment to my wife for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, to sickness and health, to love and to cherish her and her alone till death do us part. Wedding ring doesn't make me married, but it's a sign to all of you that I am married, that I have made that pledge. In the same way, baptism is an outward sign that tells others we have gone through an inward change between us and God. This is one of the reasons that, uh, by the way, baptizo in the Greek really means to plunge or to immerse, which is why we as a church typically baptize by immersion, because it pictures what actually happens to us in our salvation. We are buried with Christ going under the water, and then we are raised to new life coming out of the water. Just as Jesus Christ was buried and raised to new life, so we have been buried with him and raised to new life. By the way, I would say that if you are a Christian and you've trusted in Jesus Christ and you have never been baptized, I would strongly encourage you to be baptized. It's like saying, can you be married and not having a, have a wedding ring on? Of course you can be married and not have a wedding ring on. It's just rather odd. Can you be, can you be a Christian and not be baptized? It's true. It's just rather odd. <laughs> because it says consistently in the Great Commission and many other places of Scripture, what was the pattern? People believed and they were baptized. The belief is in their heart. The baptism is the external sign they do with their life. Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. But what has to go on in someone's life before they're baptized? Two things. Number one, they need to repent. Repent of their sin. Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance of our sin precedes um, baptism. Also, trust. They need to trust. Someone needs to trust in Jesus to pay for their sin. Acts chapter 8. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, 
Well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And what happened? Let's get baptized. And Philip took that Ethiopian eunuch down into the water, and he baptized him there, pictured buried with Christ and being brought to new life with Christ. So, by the way, I would say this, um, that baptism is an important thing that we should that we should do as Christians. It's a public way to proclaim our faith. If you were baptized as an as a infant, I don't want to get into arguments over infant baptism, by the way, and adult baptism right now. That's not my point. Uh, but I think it's interesting that when people repented and then they believed in Jesus Christ, that's when they were baptized. Infants can't repent and believe in Jesus. They, they do it, their parents baptize them, you know, in vicariously. But I think it's always neat that even if you were baptized as an infant, what a great way as an adult to say, I'm just affirming that my parents hoped for me and my parents prayed for me has actually taken place in me. I have repented of my sin. I have believed in Jesus Christ. I want to publicly proclaim that as being saved. The other thing is, uh, I would say this, that by the way, it's such a joy-filled time in your life that if you have not been baptized, do not deny yourself it. I was baptized as a junior high student at summer camp. My parents uh, didn't know anything about it. They found out when they picked me up. And that was probably appropriate because they talked about baptism at summer camp. And I went forward and I said, I want to be baptized because I am choosing to repent of my sin. I am choosing to go public with my faith in Jesus Christ. This is my choice. And that's why I want to publicly proclaim it. And I continue to look back on that to this day as a very special moment in my life. If you have not been baptized, don't deny yourself having that moment where you can look back when you went public with your faith, just like a wedding ring is public with your commitment to your spouse. Well, I took a little bit of a segue to talk about baptism because I don't get a chance to do that much. But let's get back to what's going on in this passage. Paul's emphasis, as he gets into these verses, is the picture that baptism makes. When we trust in Jesus Christ, it is as if we die with Christ and go under the water with Him. And when we come out of those waters, it's the picture of being raised to new life with Jesus Christ. Paul says, baptism pictures being buried and raised. Our old self died when we trusted in Jesus Christ. And we became a literally a new person when we trusted in Jesus Christ. Just as Christ resurrected to new life, when you and I trusted in Jesus, we were literally given new life. Our old self that had to follow sins, demands, and desires, literally died. Died with Jesus. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You are literally a new person when you become a Christian. The old has passed away. The old literally died with Christ. Behold, the new has come. Paul uses an interesting term in these verses. He says, you are united with Christ. It's a botanical term. 
it had to do with when you would take two plants and they'd be growing right next to one another. And over time, they would form into one plant together, even though they were two different trees. Sort of like grafting branches in. He said, that is the picture you have to understand of what happened to you when you became a Christian. You and Jesus are literally fused together. His death on the cross, you died in that time, and you died to the power of sin in your life. His resurrection to new life is literally your resurrection to new life in your heart and in your life. Before, we didn't realize we had solidarity with Adam, which is why we couldn't stop sinning. Now, many people don't realize they have solidarity with Christ, which is why you come to Christ and all of a sudden you see areas of your life that are sinful you never realized were sinful before. You come to Christ and all of a sudden, you're like, I can't do this anymore. And you start turning away from sin because you're united with Jesus. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Remember that botanical term? We are literally fused together with Jesus. So Jesus' death to kill the power, Jesus' Jesus death to kill, Jesus died to kill the power of sin in my life. That's what I tried to say. What he does for the following verses is he teases out what I just told you and he explains it a little bit more. First, talking about the death side. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to our sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He uses the term from the slave market. Sin is no longer your master. As a Christian, you no longer have to obey sin's temptations. You no longer have to obey its desires. You are literally dead to sin. You've been set free from the power of sin. Will sin still tempt us? Oh, yes. Will sin still try to deceive us? Oh, yes. But it's foreign to our nature now. It's not the nature we used to have that loves sin. The new nature we have now hates sin, wants to fight sin. And understand this, does not have to obey the beck and calls of sin. Many times we think we do. I have to give in to sin's temptations and desires, and we don't. We are dead to it. Many times when Christians find themselves giving into sin, it's for one of two reasons. Either they don't understand this concept that we just talked about, that they, they are literally dead to sin and raised to new life, or if they do understand it, they've forgotten about it. That as Christians, we have the power and authority to say no to all of sin, and to turn away from it. Will we do that perfectly? Absolutely not. Will we do that consistently? Of course not. But we now we can do it when we couldn't do it before. Paul 
flips from the death side to the resurrection side. Jesus' resurrection to new life was my resurrection to new life. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being died or being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. In the life he lives, he lives to God. This term once and for all is a technical term. It means that Jesus will never ever uh, come under the temptations of sin, come under the authority of sin ever again. He's died to that on the cross. And guess what? You and I are now also once for all dead to the power of sin. There never is a time when we have to give into sin. Now, Paul began by saying, won't Christians who know they're always going to receive God's grace for their sin, then go hog wild and start chasing after more and more sin? The answer is absolutely not. Because we have a new nature. Our old nature would want to go hog wild and go after sin. But that nature died with Jesus. Our new nature has victory over sin and can say no to sin and no longer wants sin and now hates sin. This is why John writes this in 1 John. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Will we sin as Christians? Yes. Will we continue in sin and delight in sin? No. You can't. Because we have a different nature inside of us. So those who claim to be Christians, who say sin is no big deal, such as my college friend, why can't I sleep with my girlfriend? Because God is always going to forgive. The answer is at that point, they've made a practice of sinning. Either they don't know Christ, or at least we can say there's no evidence of them following Christ because there's been zero victory over sin in their life. So the first key that we must understand if we're going to have victory over sin is we have to know who we are. Know that when Jesus died, the power of sin died in you. and You've trusted in him. When Jesus rose to new life, you have a new life. We're united with him. Know who we are. And then he says this, Number two, victory over sin happens when I consider myself dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this word consider, it's a very important word. In the King James, I like the King James better in this one. It's the word reckon. Reckon sounds southern. You must reckon yourself dead to sin. It's a commercial term. It means credit to one's account. Let's say I gave Diane a $5,000 check. At that moment, is Diane $5,000 richer? No, you just have a piece of paper. Until that check goes in the bank and the check turns into cash, you may know you, you, may know you have that, but it's not actually applied to you. This is what happens, he says. Many people 
as Christians, okay, they know they are dead to sin. They know that sin has no power over them. They know that the, the life of Christ is in them. They know all these things, but they don't actually believe it is true. It stays like a check that is uncashed in their wallet. They don't actually apply it to their life. We must deposit this truth in our heart and our life and believe it. Because if we don't believe it is true, we'll continue to fall right back into sin. I'll give you an example. Say the sin that you struggle with is anger. The kids are around the house. They're just irritating to you. The phone is ringing. You know, then your spouse comes home. Hey, where is dinner? You can feel it starting to boil inside you. You know, in the past, before Christ, you were somebody who would just yell and scream and just vocalize all over the place. And now when you feel that anger starting to well up inside you again, you say, oh, here I go. I have to give in to it. I always give in to that. No, you don't. That's what you used to have to do. That's not what you have to do now. You are dead to sin now. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's a new spirit in you? A spirit that wants to cultivate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control in you? So when we start to find ourselves getting angry, getting frustrated, and say, oh, I'm just going to, I'm getting beckoned by sin. But I don't have to give in to sin anymore. That's not who I am. That's who I was. I can say no to sin and walk away with it. Jesus, help me to lean into the fruit of the Spirit right now, to be gentle, loving, and kind, even though I'm really irritated right now and I'd love to scream at my family. Believe it's true, not just know this is true. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his, he gave a sermon on this passage that I found pretty helpful. And he gave this illustration. He said, in the Civil War, when slavery was ended, all slaves, no matter what their ages were, were set free. The hardest part was for the old slaves because they had never experienced what it meant to be free from a master. Some of those slaves, even though they were set free, refused to leave their master. They wanted to continue to serve their old master. They knew it was true in their head, but they couldn't apply it as true in their life. Those who did leave their old master, when they saw that master around town, they instantly went back into positions of subservience to them. They knew they had freedom, but they had a hard time actually believing they could live in freedom. It's the same for you and me. We have freedom from the power of sin. That old nature is literally crucified with Christ. We have a completely new nature in us. When sin tempts us, we do not have to give in to it anymore. Those apart from Christ do. We don't. So when we find ourselves being beckoned that way, we don't have to just know this is true. We have to believe this is true. One other step he gives us this. First one was we have to know the truth about who we are. 
Second is we have to consider is actually true. The third is this. Victory over sin happens when I make choices in line with my new identity, he says. I have to stop making choices that let sin reign in my life. He moves on to say, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments to unrighteousness. First thing he says is, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. If there's an area of sin in your life where sin has set up shop, it is now reigning, it is now controlling you, kick it out. Do not let it reign and control you. It doesn't, you don't have to bow to it anymore. Maybe an example of this is, I know it's a faulty example, but go with me on this. For some of us, it might be social media. This summer, with all the chaos going on, I know people were on social media all the time. They'd come into church, and they were angry. They were frustrated. And social media, what was being said on it, all the hatred, and the things that they were saying back on it, just unhelpful. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily think of them as joyful Christians at that point, would you? What was starting to happen is that social media had become an area of sin in their life. Because instead of being filled with joy and peace and kindness, they were filled with hatred and anger and division. Maybe that's one of those things to say, you know, I shouldn't let sin reign in my life. I'm just going to kick that social media right out of my life. I don't have to follow it. I don't have to let sin reign in me. That's not who I am, that angry, mean, nasty person. That's who I was. As a Christian, I'm different. Not only do we kick out sinful habits in our life, but he says, don't present parts of your body to sin. Don't put yourself in positions that will entice you to fall. Like, what parts of your body are we talking about? How about your eyes? Don't put yourself on a, the internet. Don't put yourself on web pages. Click, 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 click. Where it would entice you to sin and start to fall to sin. Well, yeah, before I had a look at that kind of trash. That's who I was, not who I am now. Now I can say no, and I'm going to make choices to keep me away from it. How about your ears? Turning away from listening to gossip. How about your mouth? Turning away from unkind words. How about your feet? Not walking into places that would actually lead you and tempt you away. Now he flips on the other side. He says, we don't just make choices to take out areas where sin is reigning in our life or sin is tempting us in our life, but I am to pursue choices that lead me to honoring God with my life. He says, instead, do this, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, that's your body, to God as instruments for righteousness. And what I like about this is he understands one very important thing. We're going to make good choices. It's not just about taking away bad choices. It's about replacing it with good choices. You know, I sometimes work with my, my, my children, and we talk about their friends. And I said, those really aren't the kind of friends you want to have around in your life. They're leading you in directions you don't want to go. And then so the answer comes back. So you want me to have no friends? No, I didn't say that. I didn't say get rid of all the wrong friends. I said, get rid of the wrong friends and get right friends. Get godly friends that will lead you in the right direction. 
Make the good choices. Instead of using your mouth for gossip and slander, use it to build people up. Instead of using your feet to go places that can lead you to sin, use your feet to bring you to places where you can care for the, and help others. Instead of using your hands to bring you into sin, let your hands be used to encourage others. Let me just summarize this. It's really a simple sermon in some ways. It's a complex text, but it's simple. Three things we need to know to have victory over sin, or three things we need to do. Number one, know who we are. Know that I am so closely identified with Jesus that when I became a Christian, Jesus' death to sin means the power of sin died in me. Jesus' resurrection to new life means I am also a new creation, no longer under sin's control. Sin will still harass me and tempt me, but it cannot take control of me and make me obey its commandments. I am a new creation through Jesus. We can turn away and say no. Number two, consider, I must take what I know to be true about what Jesus has done for me and continually believe it. Remind myself of it and think on it. Continually remind myself of what I know to be true about my identity in Jesus will free me from the power of sin and prevent me from falling into sin. And thirdly, it's not just knowing and believing, it's choosing. I must make choices in line with my new identity. I must choose to not let sin reign in my life or put myself in situations where sin tries to gain control of my life. Instead of offering my body to sin, I'm to offer my body to God and use my time and energy to honor Him. You know, I began by telling you this morning I was going to give you a gift. And this is probably the best Christmas gift I could ever think of giving you. The gift of how we can have victory over sin. Know that we don't have to give in to sin. Sin's power is broken if you're a Christian. Consider it as true and make choices in line with it in your life. I ask that you would unwrap the gift of a victorious life this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would um, help us this morning as we struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. Help us to know the truth of who we are. That sin does not reign and control us anymore. Help us to believe it and make choices in line with it. So we would find victory over sin, even if it was habitual, even if it was powerful, even if it was personal. I pray that you would have victory in people's lives today. That is one of the best gifts they could ever receive this Christmas. From you, Jesus Christ for what you have done by giving them a new life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.